Chapter Twelve, Part Two, of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 12 The Law of Substance. Part 2. Both the theories of substance which we have just contrasted are monistic in principle, since the opposition between the two conditions of substance, mass and ether, is not original. Moreover, they involve a continuous immediate contact and reciprocal action of the two elements. It is otherwise with the dualistic theories of substance, which still obtain in the idealist and spiritualist philosophy, and which have the support of a powerful theology, in so far as theology indulges in such metaphysical speculations. These theories draw a distinction between two entirely different kinds of substance, material and immaterial. Material substance enters into the composition of the bodies which are the object of physics and chemistry. The law of the persistence of matter and force is confined to this world apart from a belief in its creation from nothing and other miracles. Immaterial substance is found in the spiritual world to which the law does not extend. In this province the laws of physics and chemistry are either entirely inapplicable or they are subordinated to a vital force or a free will or a divine omnipotence or some other phantom which is beyond the ken of critical science. In truth, these profound errors need no further refutation today, for experience has never yet discovered for us a single immaterial substance, a single force which is not dependent on matter, or a single form of energy which is not exerted by material movement, whether it be of mass, or of ether, or of both. Even the most elaborate and most perfect forms of energy that we know, the psychic life of the higher animals, the thought and reason of man, depend on material processes or changes in the neuroplasm of the ganglionic cells. They are inconceivable apart from such modifications. I have already shown, chapter 11, that the physiological hypothesis of a special immaterial soul substance is untenable. The study of ponderable matter is primarily the concern of chemistry. Few are ignorant of the astonishing theoretical progress which this science has made in the course of the century, and the immense 
practical influence it has had on every aspect of modern life. We shall confine ourselves here to a few remarks on the more important questions which concern the nature of ponderable matter. It is well known that analytical chemistry has succeeded in resolving the immense variety of bodies in nature into a small number of simple elements, that is, simple bodies which are incapable of further analysis. The number of these elements is about seventy. Only fourteen of them are widely distributed on the earth and of much practical importance. The majority are rare elements, principally metals, of little practical moment. The affinity of these groups of elements, and the remarkable proportions of their atomic weights, which Lothar Meyer and Mendeleev have proved in their periodic system of the elements, make it extremely probable that they are not absolute species of ponderable matter, that is, not eternally unchangeable particles. The seventy elements have in that system been distributed into eight leading groups and arranged in them according to their atomic weight, so that the elements which have a chemical affinity are formed into families. The relations of the various groups in such a natural system of the elements recall, on the one hand, similar relations of the innumerable compounds of carbon, and, again, the relations of parallel groups in the natural arrangement of the animal and plant species. Since in the latter cases the affinity of the related forms is based on descent from a common parent form, it seems very probable that the same holds good of the families and orders of the chemical elements. We may therefore conclude that the empirical elements we now know are not really simple, ultimate, and unchangeable forms of matter, but compounds of homogeneous, simple, primitive atoms, variously distributed as to number and grouping. The recent speculations of Gustav Wendt, Wilhelm Preyer, Sir W. Crookes, and others have pointed out how we may conceive the evolution of the elements from a simple primitive material, the prothyl. The modern atomistic theory, which is regarded as an indispensable instrument in chemistry today, must be carefully distinguished from the old philosophic atomism, which was taught more than two thousand years ago by a group of distinguished thinkers of antiquity, Leucippus, Democritus, and Epicurus. It was considerably developed and modified later on by Descartes, Hobbes, Leibniz, and other famous philosophers. But it was not until 1808 that modern atomism assumed a definite and acceptable form and was furnished with an empirical basis by Dalton, who formulated the law of simple and multiple proportions in the formation of chemical combinations. 
he first determined the atomic weight of the different elements and thus created the solid and exact foundation on which more recent chemical theories are based these are all atomistic in the sense that they assume the elements to be made up of homogeneous infinitesimal distinct particles which are incapable of further analysis that does not touch the question of the real nature of the atoms their form size psychology etc these atomic qualities are merely hypothetical while the chemistry of the atoms their chemical affinity that is the constant proportion in which they combine with the atoms of other elements is empirical the different relation of the various elements towards each other which chemistry calls affinity is one of the most important properties of ponderable matter it is manifested in the different relative quantities or proportions of their combination in the intensity of its consummation every shade of inclination from complete indifference to the fiercest passion is exemplified in the chemical relation of the various elements towards each other just as we find in the psychology of man and especially in the life of the sexes goethe in his classical romance affinities compared the relations of pairs of lovers with the phenomenon of the same name in the formation of chemical combinations the irresistible passion that draws edward to the sympathetic otilia or paris to helen and leaps over all bounds of reason and morality is the same powerful unconscious attractive force which impels the living spermatozoon to force an entrance into the ovum in the fertilization of the egg of the animal or plant the same impetuous movement which unites two atoms of hydrogen to one atom of oxygen for the formation of a molecule of water this fundamental unity of affinity in the whole of nature from the simplest chemical process to the most complicated love story was recognized by the great greek scientist empedocles in the fifth century b c in his theory of the love and hatred of the elements it receives empirical confirmation from the interesting progress of cellular psychology the great significance of which we have only learned to appreciate in the last thirty years on those phenomena we base our conviction that even the atom is not without a rudimentary form of sensation and will or as it is better expressed of feeling aesthesis and inclination tropesis that is a universal soul of the simplest character the same must be said of the molecules which are composed of two or more atoms further combinations of different kinds of these molecules give rise to simple 
and subsequently complex chemical compounds in the activity of which the same phenomena are repeated in a more complicated form the study of ether or imponderable matter pertains principally to physics the existence of an extremely attenuated medium filling the whole of space outside of ponderable matter was known and applied to the elucidation of various phenomena especially light a long time ago but it was not until the second half of the nineteenth century that we became more closely acquainted with this remarkable substance in connection with our astonishing empirical discoveries in the province of electricity with their experimental detection their theoretical interpretation and their practical application the path was opened in particular by the famous researches of heinrich hertz of bonn in eighteen eighty eight the premature death of a brilliant young physicist of so much promise cannot be sufficiently deplored like the premature death of spinoza raphael schubert and many other great men it is one of those brutal facts of human history which are enough of themselves to destroy the untenable myth of a wise providence and an all-loving father in heaven the existence of ether or cosmic ether as a real element is a positive fact and has been known as such for the last twelve years we sometimes read even today that ether is a pure hypothesis this erroneous assertion comes not only from uninformed philosophers and popular writers but even from certain prudent and exact physicists but there would be just as much reason to deny the existence of ponderable matter as a matter of fact there are metaphysicians who accomplish even this feat and whose highest wisdom lies in denying or calling into question the existence of an external universe according to them only one real entity exists their own precious personality or to be more correct their immortal soul several modern physiologists have embraced this ultra idealist view which is to be found in descartes berkeley fichte and others their psychomonism affirms one thing only exists and that is my own mind this audacious spiritualism seems to us to rest on an erroneous inference from kant's correct critical theory that we can know the outer world only in the phenomenal aspect which is accessible to our human organs of thought the brain and the organs of sense if by those means we can attain only an imperfect and limited knowledge of the material world that is no reason for denying its existence altogether 
in my opinion, the existence of ether is as certain as that of ponderable matter, as certain as my own existence as I reflect and write on it. As we assure ourselves of the existence of ponderable matter by its mass and weight, by chemical and mechanical experiments, so we prove that of ether by the experiences and experiments of optics and electricity. Although, however, the existence of ether is now regarded as a positive fact by nearly all physicists, and although many effects of this remarkable substance are familiar to us through an extensive experience, especially in the way of optical and electrical experiments, yet we are still far from being clear and confident as to its real character. The views of the most eminent physicists who have made a special study of it are extremely divergent. They frequently contradict each other on the most important points. One is, therefore, free to choose among the contradictory hypotheses according to one's knowledge and judgment. I will put in the following eight theses the view which has approved itself to me after mature reflection on the subject, though I am no expert in this department. 1. Ether fills the whole of space in so far as it is not occupied by ponderable matter, as a continuous substance. It fully occupies the space between the atoms of ponderable matter. 2. Ether has probably no chemical quality and is not composed of atoms. If it be supposed that it consists of minute homogeneous atoms, for instance, indivisible etheric particles of a uniform size, it must be further supposed that there is something else between these atoms, either empty space, or a third completely unknown medium, a purely hypothetical inter-ether. The question as to the nature of this brings us back to the original difficulty, and so on, in infinitum. 3. As the idea of an empty space and an action at a distance is scarcely possible in the present condition of our knowledge, at least it does not help to a clear monistic view, I postulate for ether a special structure which is not atomistic like that of ponderable matter and which may provisionally be called, without further determination, etheric or dynamic structure. 4. The consistency of ether is also peculiar, on our hypothesis, and different from that of ponderable matter. It is neither gaseous, as some conceive, nor solid, as others suppose. The best idea of it can be formed by comparison with an extremely attenuated, elastic, and light jelly. 5. Ether may be called imponderable matter in the sense that we have no means of determining its weight experimentally. 
if it really has weight, as is very probable, it must be so slight as to be far below the capacity of our most delicate balance. Some physicists have attempted to determine its weight by the energy of the light waves, and have discovered that it is some fifteen trillion times lighter than atmospheric air. On that hypothesis, a sphere of ether of the size of our earth would weigh at least two hundred and fifty pounds. Parenthetical question mark. Six. The etheric consistency may probably, in accordance with the pyknotic theory, pass into the gaseous state under certain conditions by progressive condensation, just as a gas may be converted into a fluid and ultimately into a solid by lowering its temperature. 7. Consequently, these three conditions of matter may be arranged and it is a point of great importance in our monistic cosmogony. In a genetic continuous order, we may distinguish five stages in it. 1. The etheric, 2. The gaseous, 3. The fluid, 4. The viscous, in the living protoplasm, and 5. The solid state. 8. Ether is boundless and immeasurable, like the space it occupies. It is in eternal motion, and this specific movement of ether, it is immaterial whether we conceive it as vibration, strain, condensation, etc., in reciprocal action with mass movement, or gravitation, is the ultimate cause of all phenomena the great question of the nature of ether as hertz justly calls it includes the question of its relation to ponderable matter for these two forms of matter are not only always in the closest external contact but also in eternal dynamic reciprocal action we may divide the most general phenomena of nature, which are distinguished by physics as natural forces or functions of matter, into two groups. The first of them may be regarded mainly, though not exclusively, as a function of ether, and the second a function of ponderable matter, as in the following scheme which I take from my monism table the world nature or the cosmos column one ether imponderable one consistency etheric i e neither gaseous nor fluid nor solid two structure not atomistic not made up of separate particles, atoms, but continuous. 3. Chief functions. Light, radiant heat, electricity, and magnetism. Column 2. 
mass ponderable one consistency not etheric but gaseous fluid or solid two structure atomistic made up of infinitesimal distinct particles atoms discontinuous three chief functions gravity inertia molecular heat and chemical affinity end of table the two groups of functions of matter which we have opposed in this table may to some extent be regarded as the outcome of the first division of labor in the development of matter the primary ergonomy of matter but this distinction must not be supposed to involve an absolute separation of the two antithetic groups they always retain their connection and are in constant reciprocal action it is well known that the optical and electrical phenomena of ether are closely connected with mechanical and chemical changes in ponderable elements the radiant heat of ether may be directly converted into the mechanical heat of the mass gravitation is impossible unless the ether effects the mutual attraction of the separated atoms because we cannot admit the idea of an actio in distance in like manner the conversion of one form of energy into another as indicated in the law of the persistence of force illustrates the constant reciprocity of the two chief types of substance ether and mass the great law of nature which under the title of the law of substance we put at the head of all physical considerations was conceived as the law of the persistence of force by robert meyer who first formulated it and helmholtz who continued the work another german scientist friedrich mohr of bonn had clearly outlined it in its main features ten years earlier eighteen thirty seven the old idea of force was after a time differentiated by modern physics from that of energy which was at first synonymous with it hence the law is now usually called the law of the persistence of energy however this finer distinction need not enter into the general consideration to which i must confine myself here and into the question of the great principle of the persistence of substance the interested reader will find a very clear treatment of the question in tyndall's excellent paper on the fundamental law of nature in his fragments of science it fully explains the broad significance of this profound cosmic law and points out its application to the main problems of very different branches of science we shall confine our attention to the important fact that the principle of energy and the correlative idea of the unity of natural forces on the basis of a common origin 
are now accepted by all competent physicists and are regarded as the greatest advance of physics in the nineteenth century we now know that heat sound light chemical action electricity and magnetism are all modes of motion we can by a certain apparatus convert any one of these forces into another and prove by an accurate measurement that not a single particle of energy is lost in the process the sum total of force or energy in the universe remains constant no matter what changes take place around us it is eternal and infinite like the matter on which it is inseparably dependent the whole drama of nature apparently consists in an alternation of movement and repose yet the bodies at rest have an inalienable quantity of force just as truly as those that are in motion it is in this movement that the potential energy of the former is converted into the kinetic energy of the latter as the principle of the persistence of force takes into account repulsion as well as attraction it affirms that the mechanical value of the potential energy and the kinetic energy in the material world is a constant quantity to put it briefly the force of the universe is divided into two parts which may be mutually converted according to a fixed relation of value the diminution of the one involves the increase of the other the total value remains unchanged in the universe the potential energy and the actual or kinetic energy are being continually transformed from one condition to the other but the infinite sum of force in the world at large never suffers the slightest curtailment once modern physics had established the law of substance as far as the simpler relations of inorganic bodies are concerned physiology took up the story and proved its application to the entire province of the organic world it showed that all the vital activities of the organism without exception are based on a constant reciprocity of force and a correlative change of material or metabolism just as much as the simplest processes in lifeless bodies not only the growth and the nutrition of plants and animals but even their functions of sensation and movement their sense action and psychic life depend on the conversion of potential into kinetic energy and vice versa this supreme law dominates also those elaborate performances of the nervous system which we call in the higher animals and man the action of the mind our monistic view that the great cosmic law applies throughout the whole of nature is of the highest moment for it not only involves on its positive side the essential unity of the cosmos 
and the causal connection of all phenomena that come within our cognizance, but it also, in a negative way, marks the highest intellectual progress, in that it definitely rules out the three central dogmas of metaphysics, God, freedom, and immortality. In assigning mechanical causes to phenomena everywhere, the law of substance comes into line with the universal law of causality. End of chapter 12, part 2